How are you all doing? You, you got through the comedy stylings of Garrett and, uh, and the Ricky, so you're doing okay. Um, I want to just ask you to jump right in. Hopefully you bought, brought a book that looks like this. Maybe it doesn't look like this. Maybe it looks like your cell phone. Maybe it looks like an iPad. But somehow, open your Bible uh, to 1 John chapter 4. And if you don't have one of these, look on with somebody near you and then let me know afterwards and I will give you one of these books. It'll change your life, I promise. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. I just want to give you the context of where we're going here. 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Father, as we look to your word this morning, we just ask that not only would you cause your, your truth to jump off the page, but that you would open our hearts and make our hearts a great landing zone for your word. We ask you, God, to um, take away distractions. We ask you to help us to focus. I pray, Father, that what comes out of my mouth would be that which you want me to say. And I pray that each of us would open our hearts so that you could not only teach us, but transform us. That's what we're here for today, God. For your glory, transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't figured this out yet, this is the Summer of Love uh, 2017. We've been uh, in this Summer of Love series since before it was summer. Um, sometime in uh, the end of April, beginning of May, we launched into this study of 1 John, and 1 John is a book that deals a lot with this topic of love. In fact, um, really, if you boil it down, we've talked about this before, but just to help you get caught up, if you boil it down, there are three major themes in the book of 1 John, and he hits on them multiple times. The first one is the theme of belief. And basically, in 1 John, he talks to us about the fact that what you believe about God matters. What you believe about Jesus matters. It is possible to believe the wrong things about faith. It is possible to believe the wrong things about God. And if you believe the wrong things about God, you are going to be off track from the beginning. And so he talks about truth and how we have to uphold truth even in a context of a culture that maybe says, well, there is no absolute truth or spiritual truth is subjective or what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. So let's not argue about it. He says, listen, it matters what you believe. And he keeps hitting on that. The second thing that he hits on a lot is the issue of obedience. He says, listen, it's not just whether or not you believe what's right about God, it's what you do with it. He, he, he tells us that once Jesus comes into our hearts, he literally takes up resonance and changes us. There's a transforming work of God. So it is impossible to be a person who knows God and that doesn't change your life. That just doesn't happen. 
So I, I don't care how many stories we have about people who came forward at a stadium event or somebody who joined a church and got baptized and all that kind of stuff. If there's no evidence of Christ in your life, if there's no saving, changing work being done in your life, then you need to re-examine your heart and ask yourself whether you've ever really submitted your life to Christ. Because uh, a walk of, with Christ involves obedience. It always involves obedience. It's not perfect obedience because we're still in the flesh and we're still struggling, but it always involves belief. It always involves obedience. And then the third big theme that he hits on is the theme of love. And, and you know, remember what, uh, what Paul said about this, faith, hope, love, abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, right? 1 Corinthians 13. If John was writing in the same way, he might say, you know, belief, obedience, Love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the theme that he will not walk away from. You don't get away from the theme of love in this, in this book for more than two or three verses at a time. And it always comes right back to love. Um, in fact, if you look at just this section, this major section we're in right now, of 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 down through 21, those 15 verses... He uses the word love or some derivative of the word love 27 times in 15 verses. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> you're getting a little bit repetitive at some point. And it would be one thing if this is the first we'd heard about love and he's just hammering it home and hammering it home. But we heard about love in chapter one, didn't we? And we heard about love in chapter two and we heard about love in chapter three and we've already heard about love in chapter four. And I'm going to just go ahead and give you a spoiler. Chapter five is about love. Okay, that's how it is. That's what he keeps coming back and doing. And it's almost like I'm sick of it. I don't know what it's like for you because I, you know, I feel for you guys. You have to sit there and listen to whatever I decide to say, right? But, but I have some choices about what I'm going to say. I sit in my office all week and I tear at the scriptures and I try to understand and I try to figure out what it is to, that God has put in my heart to share with you on a Sunday morning. And so do the other pastors that are preaching in this series. And and. And it's a little bit frustrating. I'll just be honest with you. I just go, okay, next passage. What do we got? Love. Okay, well, I've used every love illustration I know. I've used every love verse I know. I've talked about love from every angle I know. I'm just thinking, can we please get on to something else? Can we do a series on like how God wants to bless my finances? Now, that's a series, right? <laughs> Let's do that. And, and yet, the answer, thank you for asking, the answer is no. We're not going to get off the topic. We're going to keep talking about love. And there's some reasons for that. The first is context, right? One of the reasons that it's so common at Grace Fellowship and a lot of other good Bible teaching churches that we will teach right through a book of the Bible like we're doing with 1 John is because everything that is shared in Scripture is shared in a context. We need to understand the whole of what is being said in order to understand the microscopic bits. And one of the ways that we get in trouble is when we take a verse and we lift it up out of its context and we try to make it say something that that's not what the passage is talking about. And we get into all kinds of trouble that way. So this protects us and it keeps us on track. And you know what? The Holy Spirit inspired this book. And he inspired John to write the word love 27 times in 15 verses. And he inspired him to write it in chapter one and to talk about it in chapter two and to talk about it in chapter three and all throughout the book. So if that's what he's doing, I am not going to argue with God. We're going to keep covering it because he must know that we need it. So when you think about whether or not we need it, I think we do. 
And, and, and that comes to the second issue, which is application. Because I know that you probably experienced this if you've been in church in any part of your life. You know that it is easy to sometimes sit and listen to someone expound the word of God and to go, yes, mm, boy, you were really talking to me. That was what I really needed to hear. And then to go off into your regular life outside these walls and forget it all together and nothing changes in your life. I don't know if it's just me, but I think that happens to a lot of us. So he's, he's serious about us applying what he's telling us. So, you know, the old story is the guy that came up to the preacher. He said, when are you going to stop preaching on the same topic? And the preacher said, as soon as you start applying what I'm preaching. And, and I think that should be a reminder to us. We need to be applying what God is preaching and what God is teaching us from his word. So context and, and um, application. And the third one is a little offensive, so I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to insult you. Um, the third reason that we have to keep talking about the same subject is general cluelessness. You know, we're a clueless bunch. Oftentimes, we get a taste of something God is trying to teach us, and we go, okay, I've got it. I think I've got it. And we don't even begin to have it. We don't even begin to understand it. It's not just that we're not applying it. It's that we don't really understand where God is coming from, from what he is saying. A lot of times we can miss the foundational truths that God is presenting in scripture because we get distracted by some of the more surface level stuff. And so our cluelessness requires that God keeps hitting us over the head and hitting us over the head and hitting us over the head. So if you feel like I've been hitting you over the head too much, please don't blame me. Blame the Holy Spirit. It's not my fault. Okay? <laughs> Some of us, we, we take what God has been telling us for months now about loving, and it feels to us kind of like a list of chores from your dad. You know, it's Saturday morning, and you're planning on sleeping in, and then you're going to get up and play video games, and then you're going to hang out with your friends, and then you're going to play more video games, and then you're going to play more video games, and then after that, you'll play some video games, and then you're going to go to bed, because that's what you do, Right? And that's your plan, and at 7 in the morning, dad comes in your door, opens it up, says, hey, it's time to get up, what are you going to do, sleep all day? And you're thinking, I just finished my video game an hour ago. And, and he hands you this list of chores. This is what you need to do today. You're going to have to wash the dishes, you're going to have to cut the grass, you're going to have to take out the trash, you're going to have to weed the garden. That's what you have to do today. And now you're frustrated and you're like, oh man, how am I going to do all this kind of stuff? And, and we keep hearing about these applicational things that God is asking of us and requiring of us in this area of love. And, and it just feels like, okay, this is something I have to do because my dad is making me do it. I think we need to get a different perspective on this because it's like, it's like we got cut the grass, wash the dishes, weed the garden, love that obnoxious neighbor who keeps blowing his leaves in your yard. Um, you know, love that little league coach who's not treating your kid right. Um, you know, love that um, Facebook friend who is, has obnoxious political views and keeps posting them, right? This is all on my list of things to do from God. I got to do all these things. And frankly, we still fail at loving others well. Because it's just really, really hard. Some of us are really struggling right now with loving people in our own household. Some of us are dealing with family uh, crises. Some of us are, are living on a roof where people are divided. Some of us have been, in the last 24 hours, 
um, treated badly by our loved ones, or we have treated them badly, or maybe both. We have a hard time loving the people that are closest to us, and God's saying we're supposed to love everybody, and it's hard. And so what's the key? How can we possibly get better at this? I think, for one thing, we need to start at the foundation and build from there. So go back to 1 John chapter 4, and I want you to look right in the middle of the passage that I read. You're going to find verse 19. Very short verse. Now, listen, I don't know. You can do what you want with your Bible, but here's my recommendation. Treat your Bible like a textbook. Write in the margins, circle things, highlight, underline, draw pictures and arrows and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it is, it's going to help you understand and remember what God is teaching you. If you think your Bible shouldn't be written in, God bless you. You don't have to write in it. But the rest of you, here's what I think you need to do. I think you need to take verse 19 and highlight it, circle it, star it, and put you know, um, little, uh, little um, markers all around it. Because here's what it says. We love because he first loved us. Guys, this gives us so much foundation for the rest of this discussion of love. We love because he first loved us. It's so easy in the midst of our struggles to get the love chores done to forget the foundation from which that love flows. God's love flows into me and through me to others. And sometimes we just lose track or, or we just become comfortable and familiar with God's love to the point where we're we're not empowered by it anymore. One of the things that I, that I loved when my kids were little, that, you know, there's something great about having all your kids grown, um, and the, there's, there's not as many messes, and there's not as much noise, and things don't get broken as often, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but there's stuff you miss, right? Old people, your kids are grown, right? <laughs> there's stuff we miss about when they were little, like, I didn't think I would ever miss these things, you know? But there's stuff I miss about when they were little. And one of the things I miss, we used to, we used to live in a, um, in a church parsonage. It was when the church was located in Roland Heights, the, there was a house right on the church property. And so the cool thing about that was I didn't have to drive to work. I could just walk out my front door, walk in my office door. It was, you know, a few steps back and forth. It was great, which meant I could come home for lunch easily. I could, I could just, if Christy called and said, oh my gosh, there's a lizard in the house, I could come home before Garrett ate it, right? I it would do that kind of stuff. And, and one of the things I loved is that so several times a day I would come home and it didn't seem to matter how many times a day I came home. When that doorknob turned and I walked in the door, from every room in the house, you would hear this high-pitched sound, Daddy! And they come running from every room and they throw their arms around you and they hang on to your legs and you try to walk with them like this. And, and there's just that sense of, wow, they love their dad. They're so excited to see their dad. And every time my heart just would well up, I'd be like, yes, this is the greatest thing. And, and now, of course, they still do that when I come home. <laughs> Sometimes they look down from their device and grunt and then that's about it. But, but um, I used to love it in those days when they would do that. Now, not, it doesn't always work out. It's not always a good thing. Um, when they were probably, I don't know, seven, five, and three, something like that, I remember coming home one day. If, you have a, if you're a dad and you have a son that age, it is your responsibility to roughhouse with them. That's what you do, right? So dads have to wrestle with their sons and you know, throw them through the window and that kind of stuff. That would be what we would do. And I remember I would come home and they would come running. I walked in the door. 
and I hear, Daddy! And then what I didn't expect is that Garrett was right there, and he decided it was roughhousing time. So he turns the corner and kicks me. <laughs> Not in the shin. <laughs> I, I dropped everything in my hands. Here's Garrett. Hi, Garrett. Welcome. <laughs> little punk. I, I dropped what was in my hands, fell to my knees, and began gasping for air. The poor kid is like this tall, and he looks at me and thinks, I just killed my dad, right? So he panics, and he starts crying, and he runs off. I'm like, you better run. Because <laughs> as soon as I can stand again, I'm going to find you. But, but so it doesn't always work out, but here's the thing. Did I stop loving him because he did that? Did I just go, oh man, you're no longer going to be my kid? Did, did I lose any kind of a sense of, of love for him at all? No. It hurt. <laughs> I, I expressed my love in a higher voice after that, but I still loved him. And, and I think sometimes we're just so used to this idea that we've been taught all of our Christian lives. We have a Father in heaven who loves us, and we're like, yeah, we're kind of like teenagers now. Yeah, I, I know he loves me. And, and we don't realize how empowering that can be. We don't really realize sight of, of the depth of God's love, the transformational power of God's love, and how it empowers us to then walk in the life he calls us to. So we're in 1 John 4. Just go like one page to the left of 1 John chapter 3 and look at 1 John 3, 1. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but let me just read it to you again. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. See how great a love the Father has lavished upon us. See how great a love the Father has poured out upon us. And, and I think if John was saying this instead of writing it, I think he would say it like this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. Us. Like, look around. Not impressive, right? Us. People like us, like messed up people, people who have dragged his name through the mud, people who are so easily distracted, people who get wayward, people who go after things that we have no business going after and, 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 and just take for granted the love of God. He's bestowed a love upon us that is so great that it doesn't just make us feel better, it actually makes us children of God. The scripture says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, giving us the right to be called children of God. Guys, we cannot be too excited about that. That is an astonishing truth that if we get so used to it that we don't treat it as special, we're in deep trouble. We begin to drift from that love as though somehow it becomes, the Christian life becomes about doing. And it's not about doing. Doing is the result. Let, let me show you another famous passage on this. Just flip back to the book of Romans your New Testament, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and, and there's this whole great section here that we're not going to take time with, but I just want us to look at the last two verses of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Listen to what Paul says. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing that exists, nothing that used to exist, nothing that will one day exist, nothing that has been created, no power, no idea, no principality, no satanic strategy, nothing will be able to separate the children of God from the love of God ever. That is awesome news. That is incredible truth. And and if, if we cannot get grounded in that kind of truth, that he gave us the right to be called children of God and nothing can separate us from that love, we're never going to be able to live out these commands that he gives us. Here's another one. You don't even have to look this up. You already know it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did he send his only begotten son? to pay the price for our sin so that we should not perish. What was his motivation for that? For God so loved us. His love is so profound and so deep and so wide and so unimaginably important that there's nothing that can separate us from it, that it empowers us to become children of God and it sets us free eternally. God's love. It's a big deal. And so when we get into John uh, 1 John chapter 4, and he starts telling us that the love of God, because he first loved us, is made manifest in us so that we can love others. We have to be grounded in that fact. And we can go on with passage after passage. The whole book of scripture is about our awesome God and how much he loves us and how far he's willing to go to be in relationship with us. And folks, until we start to believe what God says about us instead of what the world says about us, And until we start to to actually get our true sense of self and our true sense of value from God and his love for us, rather than these other external things that we put so much stock into, until we do that, we will always lack the necessary foundation to actually love other people. It's just going to be a nice idea. It's not going to happen in our lives until we get grounded in the love of God. So we have to understand and experience God's love. And it's from there that we're empowered to do the next thing that he calls us to do. And that is that we have to also love the other people our dad has adopted. Okay? I love the, the, the metaphor of adoption in scripture. I just think it's the coolest metaphor. Maybe some of you are in adoptive families. Maybe you were a child who was adopted. Maybe you've adopted a child. Maybe you're uh, a sibling uh, of a child, you know, a sibling of a child that was adopted into your family. I don't know what your experience has been with adoption, but I know that if I was lost and hopeless and had no parents and there was no one investing in me and nobody loved me and I didn't know where I was going and and some wonderful family came and adopted me and made me part of their family, I would be doing backflips. To, to know that you, you're just on one track and then someone lovingly, for no reason except their own love, just grabs you off that track and puts you on another track that is going to lead you to a great place, that is an awesome thing. But imagine, if you will, a family that is sort of in the habit of adopting children. They've adopted three kids already. And then one day, they hear about a kid, seven years old, Parents were killed. He's been bouncing around in the foster system and it's not been going well. And they get the opportunity and they adopt him. 
And they bring that kid home to their family and they introduce him to the other three kids who, by the way, have been in the family a while now. They already have their own rooms. They're already used to the routine. They know how it goes. And this new kid comes into our family. He doesn't look like me. He doesn't think like me. He doesn't behave the way that I like him to behave. I have nothing in common with this kid. God says those of us who have been adopted into the family of God are required to love the rest of the ones who were adopted into the family of God. And like I said, we can look around on any given Sunday and you're likely to see somebody in the room that you go, eh, not so sure about that guy, right? And God says, you're going to love them. And he doesn't just tell us we're going to love them, but he enables us to love them. When I was a kid, you know, you guys that have been around here a long time have heard all of my sibling stories, but I fought with my brother every day. There were no days that went by when we did not fight. Usually we fought physically. Always we fought verbally. There were no days when we didn't. We fought all the time. My favorite thing to do, I've probably told you this before, I would, I would get him on the ground, I would get um, a scissor lock on him, and I would squeeze him with my legs until he passed out. And then I would leave him unconscious on the living room floor, and I would get up and go and let my mother find him that way. That was my idea of a fun <laughs> afternoon. That's what I used to do. I was awful to my brother, and if you ever meet my brother, you can ask him, was he really so terrible to you as he says? He will say, and more. And... and and yet, here's the deal. I could fight with my brother all week long, but let somebody else attack him, and they're going to have to deal with me. Let somebody else attack me, and they're going to have to deal with him. You're going to fight one of us, you're going to fight both of us, because we are brothers. There's something about being brothers and sisters in Christ that should lock our arms together. We should not be fighting, but it doesn't mean you have to like everybody equally. It doesn't mean you have something in common with everyone who's in the body of Christ or even in your local church, but it does mean this. God commands you to love them. Look at 1 John chapter 4 again. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. Again, take out your highlighter, take out your pen, look at the uh, verse 21 and circle that word commandment. It doesn't say, this suggestion I give to you, love your brothers. It doesn't say, and here's a good idea under my list of five good ideas to help you have a good summer, love your brothers. It says... You have this commandment from God. You are required by God, if you're a child of God, to love your brothers and sisters. So he hasn't only commanded us to love each other, but he enables us to do it. Because sometimes we look and we go, you know, I just don't think I can love this person. I just don't know if I have it within me. I, I just, there's, there's, there's a lot of water under the bridge. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of scar tissue on my heart. I just don't know if I can really love like that. Guys, be encouraged. Our God is a just God. It would be unjust for him to command us to do something that he doesn't also enable us to do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not just commanded to love people, you're empowered to love people. Let God's Spirit love through you. And by the way, the other side of the coin is also true. He hasn't just enabled us to love one another. He has commanded us. So there aren't any excuses. There aren't any exceptions. We have to love each other. 
We need to love each other. And we cannot experience God's fullness until we love each other. Remember, remember um, Paul's illustration of this? He says, we who are in Christ are one body. And although we are many members, we are one body, right? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And he, and he says, basically, who hates themselves? Who abuses their own body? Why would you want to separate your eye from your foot? Why would you want to separate your, your kidneys from your brain? It makes no sense. God put us all together as one body, and we are members of that body. Now, before you let yourself off the hook too easily here by, by telling yourself that, you know, the reason you have broken relationships with other believers is because of the, what they did to you. It's not really your fault. It's them. I just, I just want to let the scripture speak for itself. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, in the book of Matthew, we're going to find two examples here. Both of them recorded by Matthew. Both of them spoken by Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 is the first one. So turn to Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, and, and most of the manuscripts say, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If your brother sins against you, go to him and make it right. That's what it says. So, in the case where it is your brother's fault, it is your brother's sin, right? You're not the one who did this. You didn't cause the rift in the relationship. It is them and their behavior that caused this. What does he say to do? Go to them and make it right. So if it's your brother's fault, whose responsibility is it to love? Yours, right? Now, that's interesting, and it gets even more interesting when you go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Go to Matthew 5, and let's pick it up in verse 23 of Matthew 5. Again, recorded by Matthew, spoken by Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So let me modernize and paraphrase that. You're sitting in church and the music is just beginning. You're just starting to feel yourself begin to get swept up into a time of worship and suddenly it pops into your head, oh my gosh, I've got a brother who has something against me. I've hurt somebody. I've messed up. You remember that your brother has something against you. He says, it's so important to get that patched. Just walk out of the worship service and go get it patched. Don't even let worshiping God get in the way because singing songs, or in their case, presenting an offering at the altar, is no more worship than obeying God with regard to your relationship with your brother or sister that's broken. So in this case, you're the one at fault. In this case, your brother has something against you. And what does he say? When your brother has something against you, whose responsibility is it to make it right? Yours. So when it's his fault, it's your responsibility. When it's your fault, it's your responsibility. What's he saying? He's saying no matter what, it's your responsibility to love. You don't get to pass it off. You don't get to make excuses. You go, man, this is hard. Yeah, it is. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit. Thank God we're not just commanded, but we're empowered. Here's the thing. Love is dangerous. 
Love is risky. If you love enough, it will cost you something. But what's the alternative? A loveless life, a hardened heart, a life that is closed up to others, a life that says, I will be protected. I will build a wall around myself and I won't let anybody in. Nobody's ever going to get another chance to hurt me. If you want to live like that, you can live like that. But don't call it the abundant life that Jesus came to, to give you because the abundant life that he came to give you is centered in love. See, we were not created to protect ourselves against hurt. We were created for love. We don't love because the other person deserves to be loved. That's not why God loves us, right? I, I love Ephesians 4, 30 and 31. You don't have to turn there, but um, you can write in your notes. The last two verses of Ephesians 4, it talks about, you know, stop it with all of the hatred and the malice and the anger and all of that kind of stuff. Instead, forgive one another and be tenderhearted. Just forgive. Just, just get rid of all that anger and hatred and malice and all that and just forgive. You go, yeah, that's easy for him to say, right? And, and, and then immediately your mind goes, yeah, but if, if he hadn't and if only she would, then I, you know, and we start making those excuses. And I love how he ends the verse at the end of uh, Ephesians chapter 4. He says, and forgive one another just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And your legs get cut out from under you and you no longer have an excuse because did God wait for you to clean up your life before he forgave you? No, while we were yet sinners at the right time, Christ died for us. Now, you can see I've been kind of skipping around in these verses here within this passage, and I did it for a reason because I want to end on the really cool part. And the really cool part, I think, is in verse 18. So go back to 1 John 4, and let's look at verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah? Um, there is no fear in love. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, we love this verse. We quote it all the time. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And we think it's about, like, don't be afraid of the boogeyman under your bed. That's not what it's about. It's a, in the context of love. Perfect love casts out fear. If you're going to love, you're going to be ruled by love and not ruled by fear. What does that mean? Once again, the context is everything. The main point of the passage is that we love because God first loved us. God pours his love through us. In other words, God is the source of this kind of sacrificial love that he's commanding us to give to others. Apart from him, we cannot love in this way. Our love for others is not a response to their worthiness to be loved. It is a response to God's graciousness to love us. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because he loves us, we can love others. I just said love is dangerous and risky. Why is that? Because people are jerks. That's why. Because people will mess you up. You, you go out there and you, you lay yourself out on the line, somebody will step on you, Right? You, you give your heart to somebody, really sacrifice and take a chance, chances are you're going to get hurt. Every one of us has got some scar tissue on our heart. We know this story. It's risky. It's dangerous because we're all sinners. 
And so if you're going to reach out and, and love somebody sacrificially, there's a really good chance you might get taken advantage of. There's a really good chance you might get disregarded. You might go, you know, really put yourself out there and get disregarded. There's, there's a chance you could even be abused if you put yourself out there and let somebody have a shot at your heart. It's no wonder so many of us have become defensive. It's no wonder so many of us are afraid to really love. We have all been hurt by somebody. But God is not calling us to love people because they're safe to love. He is calling us to love people as a response to his love for us. And when you and I love others, we're expressing our love to God. When we sacrifice for people who are untrustworthy, we're really loving a God who is trustworthy. Guys, I'm going to wrap with this because you need to remember it. Don't forget God's resume. Don't forget who it is who is asking you to trust him enough to love other people. This is not about whether your husband is safe to love. This is not about whether your stepmother is safe to love. This is not about whether your neighbor is safe to love. I'll just clear it up right now. They're not safe to love. This is about a God who is holy. This is about a God who is faithful. This is about a God who is almighty. That means he can do anything. He has all power. This is about a God who is all-knowing. He's not confused about your situation. He's not unaware of what is at stake here. He is a God who is all-wise. That means he understands how all this junk works together that you couldn't even begin to understand. This is a God who, on top of all of that, will never change. Same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Was God loving on the cross 2,000 years ago? Yes. Was God loving last week? Yes. Will God be loving next month? Yes. It's never going to change with God because part of his nature is God means he can't change. We're talking about a God who is gracious, a God whose first response is mercy, kindness, love, grace. Do I need to go on? I mean, we could just go on infinitum about his incredible resume. So don't let this be about the person that's hard to love. Let this be about the God who is worthy of your trust. Let this be about the God who has already proven that he's got you and he will never let you go when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for the likes of you and me. Let's make this about him. That's the God who loved you first. And that's the God who is calling you to love others. They may not be trustworthy. He is. So go ahead and love. If you're a Christian, I have great news. You're no longer a slave to fear. You're a child of God. Go ahead and love. Now, now I'm going to just give you one little disclaimer, okay? I am not saying that because you're a Christian, you're a doormat. I'm not saying that what we have to do as Christians is just lay down and be abused by people. I'm not saying that there are no reasonable boundaries that we put up among people who have been untrustworthy in our lives, okay? I'm talking about using wisdom and using love in every case. So I'm not talking about letting yourself be abused and calling it godliness. I am saying 
that whatever we decide to do in a relationship to another person, whether they have hurt us or not, must be motivated by the love of God poured through our lives. And so, in the end, God will always have your back. The trustworthy one, the holy one, the righteous one, the all-knowing one, the one who John describes again and again as love. He'll always have your back. Let him love through you. And so I end with a couple of questions. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to serve? Who do you need to make a sacrifice for? Who do you need to make things right with, regardless of whose fault all this was? There is no time like the present, and there is no God like our God. Let's